listening to First Church Charlotte. If you would like to meet me in Mark chapter number 8, we are looking at this story through the eyes of, of Peter, uh, written by John Mark, and we will read that famous passage at verse number 36, Mark chapter number 8, verse number 36, and then we will get right into the word of the Lord and be conscious of the time. All right, verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And what will you give in exchange for your soul? Soul. So we are uh, looking at this passage, wanting to learn and grow from it. Before you're seated, reach over and touch somebody nearby and say, you need to listen carefully tonight. This whole message is for you. <clears throat> Go ahead and tell them, say, I can tell you're a sinner. You need to listen. <clears throat> All right, real quick review. On this passage, uh, there is a lot happening. We're at the point of the gospel where there's a lot of compression. There is a lot of time, uh, shall we say, compression where things are happening quickly. The Lord has just revealed to his disciples that he has a path of sacrifice in his future. His disciples are not excited about this. No one is excited about sacrifice that involves us. We're fine with sacrificing the fatted calf. We're fine with sacrificing this year's diet, but we are not happy about self-sacrifice. It is a uh, heavy burden to bear. It is a weighty call to receive, and the Lord is showing his disciples at this moment that whatever plan they had for him, watch this, whatever plan they had for him, it's not their plan, it's his plan. You see, up till this moment, disciples have been able to kind of see what they hope to see in Jesus. Perhaps Judas, as the zealot, wants the Lord to finally unveil himself as a political action figure. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, you know, someone else like James and John. They hope the Lord reveals himself as a religious totalitarian who is going to set up a typical power-based kingdom, earthly power-based kingdom, and could they be made to sit on his left and his right hand? What they want is a religious totalitarian state with him as the commander and them as the under commander, under commanders, and they, they have their mother deliver this request, or she takes it upon herself to do this, and the Lord disappoints all of them. And he shows them the kind of kingdom he's going to build. And let's just be honest, it's a real big disappointment. This is not just going to be a problem for the, for the, for the disciples. The whole nation of Israel is going to re reject Jesus Christ because his view of what the kingdom of God should be comes as a big, big disappointment. 
And because he will not offer them the kingdom of heaven as they want it to be, they would rather have an earthly kingdom than a kingdom of heaven they do not approve of. And so they say, give us Barabbas. Do you see? You guys with me? So this is the, ch- this is the moment where it's all the, the, the crux of change is coming upon the disciples. If you've ever lived through some, something where your life, there was a lot of change happening at once and you felt like your head was spinning, you had this plan and this plan and this plan and this plan and then a storm blows through and after the storm passes through, there's no plans. You all have heard the story about how to tell God a joke. How do you tell God a joke? Because he knows all the punchlines, right? So how can you tell God a joke? This is how you do it. You say, I have a plan. <laughs> and then all heaven laughs. Uh, so, so they have this plan. The kingdom of God is going to be like this. Their part of it is going to be like this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, no, no, this kingdom is going to be birthed through a crucifixion. No one's excited about that. This is the moment where Peter decides to take it upon himself to try to, you know, do an intervention with the Lord Jesus and correct him. And, you know, Jesus needs Peter to save him. So Peter tries to intervene and says, no, far be it from you. This is the passage, right? Where before we did that two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me. You don't understand the kingdom of heaven. I believe most of the error that's done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a direct result of our fleshly scheming, not understanding the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, the result is we try to accomplish spiritual goals and spiritual aims through the manipulation and the scheming of the flesh. And it is not how the kingdom of heaven works. It's a very different, very different kind of kingdom. So these disciples, they're having, they're, they're having to reframe everything. We, what do you mean you're going to a cross? And then immediately on the heels of this introduction of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. When I said, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. When I said that, Peter, I wasn't just talking in poetic image. I'm speaking literally. There is a Calvary ahead of us. And so immediately following this this realization where they can no longer uh, get around the fact that this this, uh, church is going to be built upon the cross, Uh, he tells them this while their heads are still spinning. Three ideas. The first one, if you want to come after me, you have to take up your own cross. That's verse number 34, all right? Here is that first big idea. You have to take up your cross and you have to lose your life for my sake. But if you're willing to lose your life, take up your cross, then you will be given it. That's the first idea. Here's the second idea. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will you give in exchange for your soul? That's the second idea. Here's the third one. If you are ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you. Packaged together, a lot of compression. Packaged together, these three ideas right on the heel 
uh, the heels of this understanding that this kingdom of heaven is very much a kingdom that is built on Calvary, a church built upon a cross. Uh, there is so much here that I will not do it justice in the 30-odd minutes that I try to take of your week on Wednesday night. Uh, there is so much here. There is so much in this passage that kind of functions as a layer cake, you know. You get in the first layer, and there's the obvious, and then you get past that, and there is the applicable, and you get past that, and there is the prophetic, and you get past that, and there is the mystery. It is all packaged in this, and I want to, I, last, last Wednesday night, um, uh, the one before last, I dealt with the issue of um, taking up your cross and following the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to deal with the second idea, what does it profit a man if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? And what will we give in exchange for our soul? So... Uh, I want to point out a couple things here before I, I get into the into in any more into the weeds. Uh, it uh, is interesting. Sorry, my iPad's trying to install an update while I'm teaching, and it takes a lot of a lot of talent to update your iPad while you're teaching. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I want you to see something about the teaching style of Jesus. Now, let's imagine that we have over here a room full of Pharisees. Y'all can be the room full of Pharisees? Thank you very much. Don't say no. I know how y'all roll over here. And uh, so this is the room full of Pharisees. If we get a room full of Pharisees, what kind of things will they talk about? If you eat dinner with the room full of Pharisees, what will they talk about? When I say Pharisees, I don't mean our pejorative use of the term nowadays. I mean, as the political party, the highly religious people, very zealous for good things in the time of Jesus. So here they are. What would they talk about? Well, interestingly, uh, there is a ton of uh, Jewish history on what they were talking about. And these groups, these religious groups, were having very detailed, very passionate arguments over the the the... the the details of what it means to serve God. They were arguing loudly. They were accusing each other of random terrible things. They were even uh, killing each other over this. Real quick, let me give you some gossip. Everybody loves gossip. But this is some, some, some Jewish history gossip, okay? Two big schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shemei. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I might be slightly mispronouncing it depending on your, uh, your accent and how good you are in Hebrew, and I'm not very good in Hebrew. Um, so so two, two schools, uh, the, the Hillel school is considered a more liberal school. Now, to call them liberals is a joke. I mean, you just have to really not understand any, much about uh, human culture to call the school Hillel liberals. But in this highly politicized environment of uh, first century uh, Palestine, we'll call them the liberals, okay? And then the school of Shammai, which they are, they're very, very conservatives. Um, now, you won't hear this a whole lot unless you do a good amount of New Testament study. You have to understand the arguments in the context. And when you do that, you will see that nearly every case where a scribe or a lawyer brings a question to Jesus, they are referring to some of the popular arguments that the, 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 the various schools of, the, of Judaism are arguing about, and Jesus gives answers. Interestingly, 
I don't have, I'm, I'm off in the weeds. This isn't in my notes, so y'all forgive me here. Interestingly, Jesus always agrees with the school of Hillel. Not one time in any of these famous, famous debates does he come down on the school of the Shemites. It's, it's really interesting. Um, the, so, so we look at the school of Hillel versus the school of Shimei. Shimei believed that they should be isolated from the world. In fact, uh, the 18 edicts, which I'm going to tell you the story of, um, there was a, this is right before the birth of Jesus Christ, huge debate between the two schools. Um, the school of Shammai had its own army in the form of the zealots, and the school of Hillel's, they, just, they were just a bunch of lovey-dovey people. They didn't, they didn't have their own army. And so the school of Shammai called a meeting between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai to agree on the 18 edicts. And they surrounded the house uh, with the zealots. And the zealots are armed. And the, 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 the two different schools are there. And they're debating this. And the school of Shammai takes a vote. And there's too many people. Uh, from the Hillel that will not agree to what? Will the, what will they will not agree to? We don't know all 18 edicts. What we do know is it came down to this issue of isolation. That's what it came down to. The school of Hillel did not think it was a sin for you to do business with the Gentile. The school of Shammai did. The school of Hillel did not believe that you were a sinner if you ate dinner with a Gentile. And the school of Shammai, I believe you did. And so when there were more people from the school of Hillel, they took some of those people outside and the zealots killed them with knives and then they called another vote. They still didn't have enough, so they took some more out and they killed them. The zealots killed them until they killed all the lovey-dovey people. <laughs> and the only thing left was the school of Shimei. And guess what they passed? The 18 edicts. Uh, I think it happened uh, just... Uh, about probably about if I had to doing this on top of my head, but I think Joseph would have been a teenager when this happened. Okay, something like that. So um, this was a this was called, known as a day of shame in in Jewish history, and I am not an expert on this. I just know the, the the outline of it. I don't want to pretend I am an expert. There's people that spend their whole life studying the details of these this this subject, um, but they passed this 18 edicts, and the 18 edicts say you cannot have any. Uh, interaction with uh, Gentiles or non-Jews, or you are a sinner. Now, why is this such a big deal? Now, the school of Hillel believes, watch this, I'm sorry I'm not on my notes, it's just in my heart to share this with you. The school of Hillel believed that the mission of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the mission of that Abrahamic covenant was that they were supposed to go teach God's, world to all, God's word to all the nations. I'm getting a little bit of feedback up here, if you guys can fix that in the sound. Um, they believed that the, 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 the Jews should go teach the word of God to the whole nation. Well, how can you do that if you believe it's a sin to eat dinner with people? You see, you don't have to be like people to win people, but you have to like people to win people. Is that too much, too much beef and potatoes here for you? You don't have to be like people, but you have to like them. You will not win anybody you have contempt for. You won't have any good influence on somebody you have contempt for. So we need to get out of the business of believing we are made pure through isolation. Every time the, the, the school of Hillel 
every time the school of Hillel has an argument brought by an attorney or a scribe to Jesus, he always comes down on the side of, uh, uh, of the school of Hillel, never agrees with Shammai a single time in the Gospels. What's interesting about that is this point right here. If he is agreeing with the school of Hillel in their technical intra-religious uh, disagreements, um, what does that say? What does that say? I think it says, and this is broad strokes, okay? We're not doing fundamental theology right now. We're talking theme and understanding. I believe there's something powerful about the idea that God's people are not sent to be the cool kids, but they're sent to bring the good word, the gospel, the good news, God's word to all the nations. What was it that God said to Abraham? Through you shall all the nations of the world be what? Be blessed. Do you see? Okay, so if you get a room full of Pharisees together, like over here, <laughs> what are they talking about? They're talking about stuff like this. Is it a sin if you just have one diet Dr. Pepper with the Gentile? Is that a sin? Can I have one? How about iced tea? Is that a sin? They're, 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 now, contrast that with the kind of things that Jesus talks about with people. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? I want you to see the different sound in the communication and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wanting you to get above who you disagree with, who you're mad at, who you don't like, who you're voting for. And he's wanting, to see, he's wanting you to see a bigger picture. What does it profit? It? And over and over and over in the scripture, you will find this, the gospels, I should say. Jesus ignores all the little intra well, I think this and I think that. He just ignores it completely. Could he have answered the questions? Yes. He was the inspiration in the prophet's pen. He was the law given through the lawgiver. He could have answered everything. Did he answer all of these intra-Judaism disagreements? No, he ignored it. And he asked questions like this. What does it profit a man if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? So there is a simplicity Paul would have us to know that's in this gospel. There is a simplicity. Back away from all the distraction in your life and ask yourself what really matters. You see, the success of the, the world in hurting people of faith is not that we are overpowered. Not that the, the, the world jumps on us, hog ties us like a rodeo show and leaves us there laying beside the calf. No, that's not the, the risk is that we are beset with a thousand distractions. Do you see? It's the junk in our lives that keeps us from prayer. I got a pitiful amen on that one. Thank you, Sister Lisa. You were trying. You were trying to carry this whole section over here, but they're mad at the Pharisees over here, and they can't, they can't, you can't care. I understand. Let me say it again. It's the junk that keeps you from having a relationship with God. That's the success of a carnal world against the church. The world will never have spiritual authority over the church. Hell, even, will not have spiritual authority over a church. And when a church loses momentum and a church loses progress, it's not because we were outpowered. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why? What happens when a church loses its momentum? It's 
more than likely the result of all the junk that keeps us, well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, I think this. Well, I think you'd have a Dr. Pepper, but not an iced tea. Iced tea is going over the line. If you have, well, you can have one hot dog with a Gentile, but not two hot dogs. Two hot dogs, it shows a type of fellowship. Just shut up already. Let's get out of the junk and let's think about this. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This is, the, this is the, the sound of the teaching that Jesus has. Uh, these three ideas that are int- introduced here at the end of uh, Mark chapter number 8, they are not simply, I, I don't believe personally, and this is just my belief, um, I, I don't believe he just said three sentences and then walked off. I think each one of them represents the theme of conversations that were held over time uh, with the disciples, with the crowd, with the people that was kind of the in-between, you know, the, the regular followers, then uh, coming away again with the disciples. There's time passing, but these, these are the themes that emerged and thus are given to us into Scripture. So why is the soul of man valuable? I want to touch on this very quickly. Um, it is, of course, we could say, made in the image of God. Therefore, it has a God-given value. Uh, we, we could remind ourselves that um, God does not have a physical form like we do. God is a spirit. Can I have an amen? Uh, we have been given a flesh. Um, we often say in error that we have a soul. I want to tell you all that you are in error when you say that. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. What you have is a body. So don't get in this business about I have a soul. No, you are a soul. What you have is a body. The body is what's going to pass away, but the soul is going to endure, do you see? And so we are, we are beings that are in time and in space, and we are temporal, and we are living in this garden, shall we say, that God has created for us, and we have, through sin and rebellion, turned into something it was not meant to be, and so we are left with the consequences of our rebellion. The soul, we say, has value. We say we have value value. We are God's creation. We are in God's image. Uh, We are the stuff of life and eternity. We are created by God wonderfully. And we are, as the psalmist said so beautifully in Psalms chapter number eight, uh, where he is speaking of this, this creation, that we were made a little lower than the angel. So there is in this, in this economy of God, there is this, this reality reality of the of deity the unexpressible ineffable indescribable deity of god and beneath that is the heavenly uh, beings that were made as ministering spirits and god made us a little lower than the angels you could say we simply as god's children have value and you would be right and we all think those things you would think if you wanted about the moral law within that convicts us, I, uh, Emmanuel Kant, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes in all the story of apologetics, and I, I don't, this is, it's almost a quote. I won't get it exactly right, but um, Emmanuel Kant said this. He said, two things fills my heart with wonder, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. 
uh, his point being that the, the, the clearest picture of deity in the world as we experience it is the fact of the heavens, the glory of creation, the magnificence of what God has made us. That is the evidence of God's creation. And secondly, more, more difficult to understand. Simple people won't appreciate it as much. They're, they're, they'll, they're, they're, it's, it's, you have to think about it for a minute. But the evidence of God is the moral law within. What is it? in us that knows, that feels, that perceives when this is wrong and this is right. You can try to explain things away, but the truth is all cultures end up with a sense of the order of how things should be. This is what Paul talks about. God's first introduction to all, and I'm in Romans chapter number one. I'm not in my notes, but I'm in Romans chapter number one. Uh, the, the, um, the, the, the reason why you are without excuse, oh man, is because the first introduction of God to you is not through the, a preacher. The first introduction of God to you is not a church steeple. It's not even a prophet, a priest, a king, or a songwriter. The first introduction of God to you, whatever your background, whatever your upbringing, is moral law within. And Paul's point is if you won't even follow that, but instead find a way to circumvent it, then there is no obligation in heaven to take you further, and there is within you no persuasion change from what you have allowed yourself to be. Uh, so I'm off in the weeds again, forgive me. Um, so the, the idea is this, two things are filling my heart with wonder, the, 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 the starry heavens above, the moral law within, that's the first introduction we have, we have to God. So you can say we have value as eternal beings made in God's image, given a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. You, you could say that makes us valuable. Or you could do what most people do and say the experience of being human itself has a value. And even if I uh, don't know anything else and I know you're suffering, the, 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 very, the very sense of my own humanity would make me want to help you, do you see? Uh, this is uh, not as easy to understand because we think of it in terms of experience. We think of it in terms of... Um, so let's do a little thought experiment here. Uh, if, what if you couldn't... There's, you knew you couldn't live forever, but someone else could. Would you still be motivated to help them live forever? Isn't that interesting? A philosophical game you can play here with yourself. Is there value in itself of what there is to gain? Is there value in itself? If you love someone, of course there is. But if you don't love them, let me point this out to you because I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm taking you somewhere with this. Um, what if, what if um, you could not save yourself, but you decided there were value in saving others? Think of every hero whoever put his own life at risk to save someone else, and he or she was going to die that others may live. The Bible talks about it like this, greater love hath no man than this, that he or she, in this circumstance, lay down his or her life for a friend. The highest form of love is even if I cannot live, I want you to live. 
Okay, this is what makes the love of God so astounding. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is a value in your very being, the existence of your life in itself. That is your soul, and that is why it must be so painful in heaven to watch people destroy their life over dumb, worthless things. I I don't know if any of you have ever had an opportunity to know somebody who, because of an addiction, destroyed their life. Um, I I don't know. We have one of our small groups, actually, is a support group for people uh, who have gone through this this thing. As a pastor, I've I've had more than my share of exposure to people who have, they they either have done it or in the process of destroying destroying their life over what? I I don't know. Um, I've thought a lot about this, and I thought to myself, uh, just, just, it's painful for me just to see people I'm not related to. How much more horrifying must it be to have a, a son or a daughter that you love, and you are watching them throw away their life over, say, a, a high, a something. Um, there is a value that exists in you that God saw when you were yet in rebellion, and when we were yet in sin, and we had not bowed our knee, for we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't as though Christ died for the good son who stayed at home. He died for the prodigal, while the prodigal was still in the pigsty. Not even knowing if the prodigal would ever come home, and the sad reality is a lot don't. But God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So uh, if we live forever, and I'm, I'm going to try to finish up here in the next few minutes. And if we live forever, and I believe we do, I believe you believe we do. Otherwise, it's an odd way to spend your Wednesday night. If you <laughs> Really strange way to spend your Wednesday night if you don't think we're going to live forever. Uh, the body dies, it returns to dust. The soul or the spirit returns back to God. And then we wait on the resurrection of the body. And after that, however it all works out as God's in God's plan and timing, uh, we are brought in a resurrected body back into the presence of God. And there, there is a judgment on that is passed upon all the souls of uh, men and women who have been given uh, this gift, incredible gift of life. And whether we have eternal life and honor and glory and immortality or whether we have uh, indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish of soul, uh, that day of judgment will come. There's a tremendous price tag associated with redeeming a soul. And I think sometimes it is true that God values our soul more than we do. He certainly was willing to pay a higher price than some of us are willing to pay. I don't mean that ugly. I mean that very humble. I am one of you. (laughs) It's very easy to see that Christ paid and was willing to pay a higher price than we are willing to pay. Uh, Sometimes we get so lazy. We get so spiritually lazy. We can't make time for God. We can't pray. 
I'm not getting on to you. I love you. You know it's the God's truth. We don't pray like we should. We can't really be bothered to, to be committed. We get spiritually at ease. You know what I'm talking about? And yet Christ died knowing we would end up like that. <laughs> he valued our soul more, I'm afraid, than we did. And he paid a tremendous price that we might have redemption. And so he asked this question. He asked this question. Uh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He did not ask, and I want you to understand this. He did not ask, will you exchange something for your soul? He said, what will you exchange for your soul? So, this is important. This is important. The issue is not whether you are spending your soul, honey. You are spending it every day. You don't get to keep your soul in the bank. The issue is what do you spend your soul on? Do you see? The issue is not will a man exchange something for his soul? No, that's not even the question. The question is what will? The will is a definitive. The will is, the, the will is an assumption. What will? Imagine this. Uh, I take you down to your favorite mall, okay? Uh, let's say in my case, uh, my favorite mall is Walmart. So, <laughs> so we go down to, to the favorite mall and you give me a hundred dollars and I go over to the tire and battery section where I buy my suits. And uh, so I'm in the tire and battery section at Walmart picking out another suit. That's funny. I don't care what y'all say. So anyway, um, and you tell me this, this is the deal. I'm going to give you this $100. And when we leave, whatever you have left, you're going to give back to me. You're not leaving the store with my money. You can spend it all. Let me tell you real quick. Uh, I was preaching for uh, my brother down in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, he had a man in his church that was just a super, still there, great man, friend. Just a, at that, uh, it just God had blessed him. He's the kind of man who, uh, he, had a, he had the, a gift of giving. Um, that actually, on the, in the gifts that are talked about in the book of, of the letter to Corinthians, uh, giving is actually a gift. Some people have it. Uh, some people don't. Some people, they can't. You, you try to squeeze a dollar out of them, you'd have better luck trying to, mm, don't get me cussing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about? But some people had this gift. He was like that. He had a gift of giving. Um, he was blessed tremendously, Perhaps as a result of that, I, I think there's something to be said about God uh, blessing people that he knows he can trust with blessing. Um, if he can't trust you with a blessing, then the blessing becomes a curse and kind of misses the point. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the old saying about, you know, somebody's, they're good people, but they spend their whole life, they've been broke their whole life, never had a break. Well, God probably knows them better than you do. <laughs> That's why my mom never got any money. See, if she'd end up in Vegas, you give that woman a little bit of money. Just teasing, just teasing. <laughs> that was, I, that's like a random award, isn't it? That's really random. Okay, so, all right. Um, anyway, he took me. I was down there preaching. I was a poor evangelist. I wasn't an evangelist. I was a poor evangelist. There's a difference. I, 
I mean, I was a poor evangelist. He took me to the nicest men's shop down in South Florida called Damiani, still down there. Uh, now I take my wife and make her buy me stuff. But anyway, <laughs> he took me there and he bought me three, like three or four suits, a sport coat, uh, 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 shoes. I mean, I, I was like, I was rolling, man. And when I got up that to the counter, the bill came up. My, just my bill was like $4,000. And he whipped out that gold. Back then it was gold. Now everybody wants a black credit card. You guys have black credit cards, and you pay, what, $1,500 a year to have that black credit card? God bless you. Too much money. You need to give more to the church. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Back then it was gold. Everybody wanted gold. You know what I mean? He whipped out that gold or platinum gold, whatever it was. I don't know that kind of stuff. He, he, he whipped it out there, threw it on the, threw it on the counter, and they just swiped it. And I, it was like a miracle. I just walked right out with these suits, bags hanging off of me. Uh, it was like pretty woman, man. You know? <laughs> Who am I in this movie? <laughs> I'll be watching movies. Uh, <laughs> I'm loaded down. I've got bags hanging off. I've got suits out of there. I'm not looking. I'm waiting for the police to pull up. Stop. Assume the position. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm a shoplifter. That, that, what if someone took you and said, I will buy you whatever you want. Here's the money. But you can't leave the store with any left. If you leave with any, it's coming back to me. So this is what I want you to see. You don't get to not spend your soul. Your soul is spent every day. All you get to do is decide what you spend it on. So now that puts this story of the Lord Jesus Christ in better contrast. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus says. A certain man went away to a far country, and he left with his stewards certain talents. And to one he gave, somebody say gave. He gave, say it again, he gave. He didn't loan, he gave. He gave it, and he wants you, him to give it back. Do you see? The verb choice there is interesting. There is Greek verbs for loan, that's not what they used. He gave, it's given to a time, and when I come back, you're giving it back. And he gave it, and that person has to decide what they're going to do. What are you going to spend your soul on? What are you going to spend your talents on? What are you going to spend your abilities on? Look back, this, we're at the end of the year. What have you spent your soul on this year? My Lord, if I'm going to preach like that, we're going to have to have an altar call here in a little while. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't have an option of not spending it. You spend it on something. You may have spent it on the NFL. Nothing wrong with the NFL, but you get the idea. My goal is to make you feel terrible, so that, that's working good. You may have spent it on the NBA. You may have spent it on whatever you know your favorite politics are. You may have spent it on getting rich. You may have spent it on whatever. You get the idea. But in all of your spending of yourself, did you also spend your soul on something that will last forever? What will you give in exchange for your soul? You don't have the option to not spend it. You've got to spend it on something. What are you going to spend it on? So, uh, 
me uh, end. Meg, you can come and play and encourage everybody. Let me end with a little a story that I, I came across, if I can actually put my hands on it. Um, it is a story that happened in uh, Harlem, and there was a millionaire named Eugene Lang who was invited a few years back to speak to a class of sixth graders. You know, sixth grade, that's really, according to all the research, that's it's middle school, that's where the, all of the trouble is just cranking up. It's like that's where you lose them. You lose them in middle school. By the time they get to high school, they're either, it's, it's too late. He was invited to speak there. It was an inner city school, and the building, they, he says, was ramshackle, and um, the school, when he went to speak there, uh, he looked at some of the statistics from that school, and they painted a dismal picture. Uh, he realized that within three years, within three years, sixth grade, sixth grade, within three years, by the statistics he had been given, most of the students would drop out. Some of them would end up in gangs. Some of them would end up selling or, or addicted to drugs. Some of them would end up literally in the working as in prostitution. The numbers were horrible. And when he looked at those numbers and he realized, I'm going to speak to these kids and the majority of them within three years are going to be in this situation, this situation, this situation, or this situation. Only a minority is going to make it out. Uh, he said it, it, it broke his heart. And he went to talk to them and he pleaded with them, look, stay in school. It may not make sense right now. But stay in school. Give yourself a chance. And he was pleading with them and pleading with them. And he, and he, he getting emotional as he pleaded with them. Look, stay in school. And uh, he said, just impromptu, he said, tell you what, if you'll stay in school, I'll pay for you to go to college. And like as soon as he said it, like, what, what have I just said? <laughs> um, true story. Uh, his exact quote, stay in school and I will pay the college tuition for every one of you. Here's what's interesting. 90% of that class took him up on his offer. 90%. It completely changed. It like, it was like the statistics of what was going to happen, they all went out the window. 90% of those kids graduated from high school and went to college. And one of the boys said this to describe it. He said, this is one of the boys who took him up. I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. In other words, I thought my life was this. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. And then someone intervened. And they told me, if I just would do my part, my life wouldn't be this. My life would be this. And that's the story shown to us in a practical, real-life, modern example. That is really, on a larger scale, the story of grace. Our life was this. And God said, hey, if you will just work with me, <laughs> if you'll just try, if you'll just repent, if you'll just put your hand in my hand, I promise you, I'm going to pay the debt you can't pay. Your life doesn't have to be this. Your life can be this.
That's like a golden feeling. It's like hope. I'm not trapped in a cycle. I'm not trapped in a crab bucket. I have, I have a path. My tuition, shall I say, has been paid. That's the story of grace. You're spending your soul anyway. You might as well spend it on something that's going to last as long as you will. Is that fair? It's going anyway. You might as well spend it on something that's going to last as long as you do. That's the kingdom of God. Let's all stand. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have hearts that are drawn, drawn to your presence, that our hearts would not be so distracted and filled with the things of this world that we would in some way allow ourselves to grow cold in our zeal for the things of God. But Lord Jesus, let us, let us get to first principles, I pray. Let us get to first principles and, and, and ask ourselves, how are we living our life? How are we walking? How are we progressing? How are we living? What choices are we making? Lord Jesus, I pray as, as people who are striving to know you, people uh, striving to, to follow in your path, Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we would not be turned to the left or the right with distractions. But Lord, we have this soul to spend and we want to spend it on your kingdom. If we give it to you, you will multiply it and give it back to us. If we give it to you and seek it, seek first your kingdom and your will, then you'll give us the desires of our heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Help us, lead us, guide us, bless us. In your precious name, amen, amen. Before we go, would you just lift your hands and let's worship the Lord one more time before we're dismissed here today. Oh, we bless your name in this house. I want to just say thank you for your blessings in my life, oh God. I want to say thank you for your goodness. I want to say thank you for what you have done. All the gifts and the blessings that come from your presence is far in excess of anything we deserve. And we praise you today with our lives. We worship you today with our lives. We want to be your people. We want to be the sheep of your pasture. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you all. I love you. A lot in this passage. There's a lot in Mark chapter number eight. Think about it. Apply it to your lives. God bless you all. Remember remember the uh, announcements. Uh, we mentioned the, the banquet, et cetera, et cetera. God bless you all. You can be dismissed in Jesus' name. We love you. Have a great week. We will see you Sunday. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. and Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.